Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Bishal Giwali. He has been a guest on my older show, my older podcast, Outspoken Oncology, when we discussed financial toxicity. But I've invited Bishal back to visit with me on Healthcare Unfiltered to talk about a recent paper that he published in an attempt to educate the masses and educate the public about optimal clinical trial design. And I read the paper and it was great. And I think what Bishal was trying to highlight opportunities are opportunities where we can design clinical trials in a way that we have more faith in the results of the trial. So the trial should be designed in a way that not, you know, not in a way that, uh, for example, would make the experimental arm artificially better than the control arm. It should be designed with the intent that we want to get the answer properly. We want to get the answer whether it is negative or positive. And I wanted him to walk us through that paper, through these 10 points that he published about these 10 ideas that will make clinical trial design in oncology much better. Also, by the way, he is going to share with you for the first time, something new that he has not shared with anybody else, but you'll go listen to the Healthcare Unfiltered so you know exactly what he's going to share with us. Bishal is one of the most conscientious physicians that I know. He has a passion for global oncology. He has a passion to optimize clinical care delivery to patients across the world, especially in low middle income countries. And he has published a lot on the topic very personable and just really, I know that even if you have never met him by listening to this episode, you are going to love this guy and you're going to enjoy listening to this episode. You should follow him on Twitter and follow his work because he is really very, very inspiring. He also speaks four languages. Well, three and English. And I will ask him to speak in a different language on my podcast. So stay tuned. Please subscribe to Healthcare Unfiltered. Please rate Healthcare Unfiltered. Please write a review for Healthcare Unfiltered and refer a friend or a colleague. I would be very grateful. We are on every single podcast outlet that you could possibly find. And without further ado, Dr. Bishal Giwali exclusively on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Well, guys, I'm really very excited today uh, because I I am reconnecting with a colleague, a friend, and someone who have ad- I have admired his work for a long time. Uh, I'm going to call him like a social media sensation, uh, Dr. Vishal <laughs> uh, Giawali. Uh, he'll introduce himself uh, to you in a little bit. Uh, we are taping this episode at the end of April 2021. It's going to air uh, in a couple of weeks. Um but uh, Bishal is going to introduce himself, and I think there's some huge announcements that will be only heard for the first time <laughs> ever, ever on Healthcare Unfiltered. 
This is where we break the news, Bishal, right? <laughs> yeah, thank yeah. you, Zadi. It's... All right, so Bishal, introduce yourself to folks and let's break the news to everyone. <laughs> thank you, Zadi. It's, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Um, and I miss seeing you in person. I miss meeting with you in Chicago, going out, uh, hanging out uh, Ooh, for drinks cool. and so. Yeah, but uh, thank you. My name is Bishal Gewali. I am, and, and the big news Zadi is referring to is I'm going to start uh, as an associate professor in the departments of oncology and public health sciences in Queen's University, Canada from June, 2021. So you got promoted within two years to an associate professor. It couldn't have happened to a bare person. Many congratulations to you, Bishal. You work very hard and you work from your heart and uh, you deserve all, uh, all the best. Uh, tell Thank us, you very much, uh, just for folks who probably don't know you a little bit, just tell us a little bit about, uh, we're going to talk about uh, your recent research and your recent publication, because I thought it was just fascinating. I loved it. But uh, just a little about you, you know, where you went to school, background a little bit, and how did you end up in Canada? Yeah, that's an interesting story. Uh, I refer to that, to my journey as from Nepal to Nippon to the North. Uh -huh. uh, so I'm from Nepal. Uh, I did my um, I, I was born there, grew up there. I did my medical school in Nepal, Tribhuvan University. Uh, and after graduating my medical school, I went to Japan for my medical oncology training. I, was, uh, I did my uh, medical oncology training there for five years. I also got a PhD there from Nagoya University uh, in 2017. And I returned back to Nepal. I worked in a government hospital called Civil Service Hospital in Kathmandu for around six months as a medical oncologist. Uh, after which I moved to Boston to do a research fellowship in cancer policy with uh, Dr. Aaron Kesselheim in the portal program on regulation therapeutics and law group at Harvard. Uh, and in 2019 March, I moved from there to Queen's University in Kingston, Canada. Um, and until now, I was working as a clinical fellow in oncology and an assistant professor in the Department of Public Health Sciences. And from June of this year, I'll be transitioning to an associate professor in both these departments. Well, congratulations. So how many languages do you speak, buddy? <laughs> uh, four. Nepali, Hindi, English, and Japanese. Okay. So what we're going to do is you're going to, we, we have to see, say a few words in each language so we can, we, see my goal, I need to get more languages <laughs> Japan and Nepal. I have to ask you, uh, Bishal, how's, how's your family and friends and, and colleagues back in, in India and Nepal? I mean, we hear so much of these tragic stories and I, I'm going to air an episode on that. I, I've already did and I'm going to air another one, but uh, I hope, uh, what's going on? How are things? Yeah, it is. It is very scary, to be honest. Uh, and it is partly our own fault uh, because we did not take the first two waves seriously. And, you know, I, I don't know exactly how to explain this, but when the whole world was being hit by COVID, it did not affect uh, Nepal or India as bad as it did in, in these other parts of the world. So in a sense, when I was talking with my, my family and friends in Nepal for the first couple of weeks, they were scared and they were following all the precautions, but slowly they realized that probably they are, they are, they are immune from COVID. Like people were not dying uh, and there was not much uh, hospitalization. So people started opening up and that opening up became so intense that people forgot that the rest of the world is still suffering from COVID. So I was surprised that people were having wedding parties, political rallies, 
as if nothing had happened and, and nothing was happening until this last, uh, until this, exactly. yeah, what we call third wave here or probably just a second wave uh, back home. Uh, but when this new variant uh, started, this double mutant variant, now this has been, uh, this is having very severe consequences and, and uh, like, I guess what was happening in New York and Italy and those um, big hits during early pandemic is is exactly what's happening now in Nepal and India. But the problem is uh, we are not equipped to deal with uh, these huge outbreaks. Our our medical system has always been uh, strained even before the pandemic, uh, and uh, people are not following the guidelines uh, well because. As I mentioned, uh, the first wave did not hit us that bad. So uh, we had a false sense of confidence and complacency that probably our uh, like uh, our part of the world is immune to, to COVID virus. So but people, Vishal, yeah. do, you, do you remember there were a lot of thought leaders and you know mm-hmm. experts that were trying to, pon- that they did suggest there may be some plausible scientific biological reasons why folks and people in that region of the world were not as heavily predisposed to COVID, whether it's uh, uh, BCG, whether it's... Uh, 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 remember those? Yeah, 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 I do, I do. There are, like uh, people were trying to explain that differences. Uh, uh, and I don't know if any of those hypotheses are true, uh, but... Uh, I think our main mistake was uh, that we did not think that, uh, you know, uh, there could be mutations and the newer variants that could affect us. And we did not use, yes, we suffered less compared to the rest of the country. That's true. We did not have as much uh, effect of uh, the disease during the first wave, but we did not use that time to prepare ourselves better for whatever wave it would eventually come. We did not, instead of instead of focusing our resources on, on strengthening the health systems, we instead had these big political rallies and, and parties. And um, we did not, like we, we were lucky in that we got plenty of time, uh, but we were unfortunate in that uh, our system did not use that time to prepare ourselves better. Yeah, well, I hope, I hope things really, um... Just get better, uh, better fast. I yeah, think. it's 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 especially scary for for people like us who are away from the family and absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah, the, all I can do is just just talk to my parents like I'm talking with you now in a, in a video call, but that does not compensate for the oh, fact that it, uh, uh, it's yeah. not the same. You know, it's not the same. Yeah. And I hope you get yeah. to see them very, very, very soon. Yeah. Well, Thank let's you, let's distract you a little bit. Let's distract you a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's a good distraction. Um, I've asked you to come on the show uh, because, um, I mean, you're you're one of the most prolific researchers and writers that I follow, uh, and I follow your work. Uh, and, and one of the things that you are passionate about is clinical trial design, and you know, you're 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 appropriately critical when trial is not uh, adequately uh, designed or powered, and all of these things. Um, and even I mean, we're taping today, uh, several or a day or two after some recent ODAC decision that you were uh, vehemently uh, opposed to, uh, <laughs> and so forth. But I wanna I wanna talk about optimal clinical trial design um, mm-hmm. with you because you wrote about this and you mm-hmm. identified certain 
aspects of clinical trial design yet that you believe should be fulfilled. So mm -hmm. that's really the frame of our conversation. So mm -hmm. let's level set, first of all, Bishal, what led you to write that paper about clinical trial design? I mean, wh why did you even write it? Yeah, you you caught me at a at a little sad time after the ODAC meetings. I'm 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 a little depressed that our community will change or the system will change for the better. I'm a little depressed right now. But when I started writing that paper, I was very much encouraged, <laughs> and I thought naively that uh, yeah, I thought naively that what people need is education, and if they are educated, probably they will change. But now I'm 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 having thoughts that maybe. Probably people already know, but they are just choosing to turn a blind eye. And, and that's a big difference between not knowing versus knowing, but turning a blind eye. So when uh, this all started... I love that, actually, I love that by the way. <laughs> not knowing versus knowing yeah. and turning a blind eye. Yeah. Uh, so this all started uh, last year at the ESMO annual meeting. And I have to give huge credit to uh, the chief of the ESMO MCBS. This is the magnitude of clinical benefit scale. ESMO MCBS working group, Professor Nathan Cerny from Israel. Uh, so first of all, he invited me to be a member of the extended working group for the ESMO MCBS committee. And while working uh, through various uh, meetings uh, in that committee and, and thinking more about uh, how we can grade the magnitude of clinical benefit for different cancer drugs appropriately, uh, Nathan asked me if I would do a presentation at the ESMO annual meeting about different issues with trial design that can give a falsely high score for a cancer drug. So uh, the readers may or may not know, the audience may or may not know, there is something called the ESMO MCBS scale. So this is a scale that grades cancer drugs from one to five in the advanced setting and from A to C in the adjuvant or neoadjuvant setting. And higher the score, better is supposed to be the clinical benefit of the drug. So uh, a drug with a clinical benefit score of four or five is considered to have substantial clinical benefit versus a drug that has a score of one or two, which is supposed to have very minimal clinical benefit. And this scale is now adopted by the WHO in, in discussing their essential medicine list and various countries in Europe and elsewhere to decide which drugs to reimburse versus which drugs not to reimburse and those policy decisions. And this score, uh, now I'm just making a generalized statement, there are nuances to it, but this score basically takes into account the difference in median survival times, the hazard ratio, confidence interval, toxicities, quality of life, uh, and so on to come up with that value. So uh, my, and so during that uh, annual meeting talk, uh, my talk, uh, in my talk, I made a point that yes, that tool is quite important because it gives us an idea about uh, prioritization of drugs, but what about certain flaws in trial design which cannot be captured by that value. Like if you are a, for example, if you're using an inferior control arm, then your median survival times will look great. The hazard ratio will look great. Everything will look great. But, but, but there is the issue that the trial did not use an appropriate control arm and that's why everything is looking better. So those issues, how are we going to control for those issues was my question. Right, so your role was to identify the issues that could artificially uh, improve the score of yeah. a cancer drug. Yeah, and make a drug look better than it actually is. 
so I, I presented it uh, last year's ESMO uh, virtual annual meeting about these certain trial design issues that could uh, that could inflate these scores and make a drug look better, and you know, and it's it's it shows. The reason I said, uh, I told you that I was encouraged is because after that presentation, the MCBS team, the SMO team as a whole took those points so well, they thought like, yes, this is really an issue. Like they could have taken it in, 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 in a wrong way. And, you know, sure. people can always defend and say that uh, uh, and, and, and defend the trial designs. But the whole team took it so positively. And Nathan encouraged me that like many people will not hear the talk, but if we write about it, then many people will read the paper and it can be used as a, as a source of reading material for uh, trainees as well. So Nathan and, and uh, Elizabeth DeVries, um, both uh, chairs and coach and past chair of the ESMO MCBS team, they encouraged me to write, uh, write it. And then we started writing about it. And once you start writing about it, uh, you know, things get expanded and from Two examples, four, four to six, and then so we how, try to be as. How many? How many points did you identify that could cause inflation of a drug uh, uh, score? Uh, so we identified ten points in total. Okay. Well, let's go. Uh, let's go over yeah. each one, and I, I'll uh, I'll try to play a counterpoint for each one, so the audience <laughs> can listen. Yeah. Enjoy a little bit, and then okay. First point. So, uh, so we divide these uh, 10 points into three categories. One as design issues, and the other as uh, uh, analysis issues, and uh, other as implementation issues. So first, with regards to design I can, issues. I can tell, by the way, that uh, your daughter probably is screaming in the background. Yeah, she's, she's playing. It means you're, you're at home, you're not at work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why you have this virtual background because yeah. I can't show you my real background, what it looks like. <laughs> unlike, unlike your very tidy and, and nice graceful. The nice thing. <laughs> yeah. Right, let's go over the first point. Yeah. So the first one is uh, the substandard control arm issue. Um, as you know, this has been a, a real issue in, in recent years. Take the example of the of the. Uh, polo trial in pancreatic cancer. You can take the example of uh, uh, the uh, PARP inhibitor trials in prostate cancers. Uh, I know that uh, Binet has already ripped these trials apart. Uh, but uh, Bishal, when, whenever we talk about the substandard control arm, and I and uh -huh. I do totally agree with you that uh, uh -huh. some of these are definitely substandard, but um, uh -huh. but uh, uh, oftentimes the pushback that we uh -huh. get about the substandard control arm is twofold. Uh -huh. One is that it may be a substandard control arm in the US, but uh -huh. in low middle income countries, and I know you're very passionate about that, uh -huh. this may be an acceptable control arm. And in a global trial, we need to allow this because that's really what folks in these um, low middle income countries could get. And the second pushback we usually get is we started the trial in 2014. This was an acceptable control arm. The trial read in 2020. And during that time, the control arm changed. It became very difficult to make these changes on the, from a regulatory perspective on that trial. How do we respond to these two pushback? And do you agree with no, that? No, no, those are, those are excellent points. Uh, for, especially with regards to the uh, first point that uh, the 
the actual standard control was not available in 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 rest of the world so when when we are running a trial globally it was not possible to offer the best possible control arm to the participants uh, outside of us or europe uh, but i think uh, there are there are certain problems with that argument uh, let okay i let us talk um, taking some some real examples let's name names uh, there is this uh, new empower trial of a new anti pdl1 antibody semiplimab in lung cancer so it got recently it got fda approved so this trial ran in rest of the world semiplimab versus chemotherapy and after we already knew that uh, we had all those positive trials of of pembrolizumab in lung cancer and for patients who are pdl1 positive we ran a trial outside of us randomizing patients to receive either pembrolizumab or chemotherapy uh, so for me that is clearly an inferior control and that has that has two consequences one is that if that trial was not used as a basis for approval in the us then that would have been a different story but that same trial is being used as a basis for approval in the us and the second more more importantly about global health this is this is a recurring theme in global health research and especially in global cancer trials so i want to stress this point people argue that okay like at least the participants in the trial got access to a pd1 inhibitor because these patients would never have access to pd1 inhibitor if they were not a part of the trial is what what people argue right because let's say we are running this trial in, in nepal um i'm just giving an example we did not run this yeah, trial yeah, yeah. in nepal yeah, yeah. but uh, let's say we are running this trial in nepal and my nepalese patients would never have access to a pd1 inhibitor mm-hmm. uh, but uh, now 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 the argument is that we should feel happy because at least some of my patients got access to pd1 inhibitor because they were a part of the trial how big is the trial a trial in was like 500 patients right and of those 500 patients half of them will be randomized to control arm so it's 250 patients now the, what is the lung cancer population of that country right yeah. and the lung cancer popul- that like in a global trial maybe there are two patients three patients five patients from one particular country or even if the whole rest of the world if we consider as one bucket maybe that that is like 100 or 150 or 200 patients who got access to a new drug so the question is after that trial was completed and we knew that this new drug semiplimab is better uh, than chemotherapy or uh, how many of those patients a will continue to have access to the drug and b because these patients participated in a trial for the ulterior good of future patients how many of the future patients in that country will have access to the same drug none so is that because, so i didn't know that so basically that checkpoint inhibitor that was used mm-hmm. in that trial is not going to be made available in that country where the trial enrolled like 250 patients uh, maybe they will continue for those particular patients who were enrolled in the trial but not for the other patients with the exact same scenario right so because it is out of affordability um, for those countries and for the patients so this is a classic example of i may be being harsh here but i am emotionally involved as well being a global oncology researcher coming from coming from what the world calls the rest of the world 
uh, I think this is research parasitism. What people call research parasite. I think this is a research. Uh, this is an example of research parasitism. You are, in a sense, you are just using these patients so that you can get your drug approved in the U.S. Because no patients in the U.S. would be would sign up for such a trial. So. In case of collaborative global research, there should be some benefit for the, for the global community. And what is the benefit here? Should we just be happy that, okay, two of my patients got access no, that, to- that, That's a very good point. I see your point. I think it's, so I think the argument for that is rather thin. It's not really very strong. I see your point. Yeah. How about uh, when the control arm changes? Like, you know, while you're running the trial, mm -hmm. something discovered. Now, now the, that, is, that is a more valid argument, I agree. Uh, and this has happened a number of times. Uh, to be honest, the ideal thing is, and the ethical thing is, if the control arm changes during the running of a trial, then there should be, like, there are so many um, amendments to a trial protocol. So I think it is ethical and imperative to let the patients know that the control arm, like the standard of control has changed. And ideally, if you are not a part of this trial, you would have received this control arm, which is a better control arm that we already know. So that would be the ideal and ethical thing to do. But uh, but I would I would consider that this argument is is more valid than the previous argument. And sometimes it may not be logistically feasible, but it also depends on how like. It also depends on the trial duration and the years of the trial. So if a trial completed in 2015, but uh, the standard of control changed in 2014. That's that's very much understandable. But the standard of control changed in 2014, but the trial is running until 2020. Um, then that is not uh, justified. And Bishal, there are a lot of people that would say, but deciding on a control arm sometimes is not easy when you're running a clinical trial. I mean, I've been part of cooperative groups when I was in um, at the university and I, I would attend the cooperative group meetings where there's a lot of discussion into the design of this particular trial and and there's so many you know many discussions into what's the control arm for this trial what's the experimental arm and I could tell you there's it's not easy honestly to reach a consensus um, so many many clinical trialists will push back and they will say, well, it's, it's not really easy. And sometimes we have to figure out the best of worst evils or whatever it is that we say. Uh, I would put a counter argument, like with these trials, why would you always, like with those, all those debates going on, why, why do you always see that the conclusion is always towards using an using a inferior control arm then? Well, <laughs> why not use something better than... <laughs> <laughs> because you need the trial to be funded, because otherwise <laughs> the trial won't be funded. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, okay, for example, let's talk about Olympia trial. This is the trial of Olaparib versus physician's choice chemotherapy in, 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 in triple negative breast cancer. So the, the, the funny thing is, I guess because of those debates about what should be the control arm and nobody reached to a consensus, they said, let's use physician's choice as the control arm, right? But when they say physician's choice control arm, why did they specifically exclude platinum agent? They say physician's choice control arm, but you can choice among these three different chemotherapy, but you cannot choose platinum. So like these are the things that, that uh, make it clear that there was some motivation to, to play with the control arm so that it does not look as unethical that it would not be approved by the IRB or the, or the regulators, but 
you could still have that advantage of uh, yeah. No, very, yeah. very, very good points. Okay, what's yeah. the number two in clinical trial design? We talk about the control arm, number two. And number two is uh, about the use of uh, surrogate endpoints. Okay, uh, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this has, we have, we have, mm, mm, we have done a lot of work about this. And uh, I think like whenever we talk about surrogate endpoints, first, there, there are a couple of things we need to consider. A, what is the validity of the surrogate endpoint in that setting? Like all surrogate endpoints may not be same, right? Uh, and the FDA actually in, I think 2018, they did a good work by publishing a table, a list of all the surrogate endpoints that they have used in the past or they are willing to consider in the future, uh, not only for cancer, but for all diseases. And in that table, if we look at the cancers, we see that the FDA has uh, like put all tumors together and said like response rate is good enough for accelerated approval or regular approval. But I, I argue that you can't just say or PFS or DFS for that matter. PFS is a good enough surrogate for all solid tumors or a bad surrogate for all solid tumors. There might be some setting where it is a good surrogate and there might be some specific setting where it is a bad surrogate. And if we are using a certain surrogate as a basis for regulatory approval, it is mandatory for us to also show the validation results. Like what is the correlation coefficient? What is the 95% confidence interval? Why is this surrogate a valid surrogate in this context? Or why it is not a valid? The surprising thing is, I think you may have read that paper in, in, in 2019, we published that accelerated approval review of FDA in JAMA Internal Medicine. And we saw that the FDA was in some cases using the exact same surrogate for giving accelerated approval as well as for giving regular approval. And that makes absolutely no sense to me. If you think that a surrogate is weak enough that it does not deserve regular approval and gets only accelerated approval, how can the same surrogate now be used and be said that it is good enough for regular approval. So, so you're not against using surrogate endpoints. You, you are willing to use surrogate endpoints if there are studies that have demonstrated their validity in a particular context. Yes. Um, can you give listeners an example where you are in support of using a surrogate endpoint? Uh, yeah, like if there is a good validity, for example, uh, I like off the top of my head, I think DFS is a valid enough surrogate uh, in case of colorectal cancer. Uh, okay. And similarly, I think DFS is also a good surrogate for HER2 positive breast cancer. I see. Okay. But, but this situation. Yeah, but we can't lump together. Like we can't say for all breast cancers, we need to study that for specific situations. And even in lung cancer, uh, DFS is a good surrogate uh, for OS when we're using chemotherapy or radiation, but we don't know whether it will hold true for targeted therapies and immunotherapies. I, I think the issue with surrogate endpoints, many, many people will contend that because we're making good progress in cancer, which is good, right? I mean, we're all mm -hmm. happy whenever we make progress in cancer. Overall survival is extremely difficult to be the only endpoint. It's going to delay uh, drug approvals, uh, patient access, and things like that if you put overall survival as a blanket statement for every drug approval? I had a good answer for that until a week ago, but this ODAC <laughs> meeting ruined everything. This ODAC this meeting ruined everything. Because US Tell us, had, tell us about that, by the way. Tell us about that. 
because us had the had the best system the us had the system of accelerated approval on the basis of surrogate endpoints so you it was the best of both worlds like there are, there are, there are two two ex, like there are two groups of patients one group of patients and you might have seen, it's like seen this in a clinical practice that there are there are certain patients who would even refuse to get even curative treatments because they Absolutely. just yeah they, they they have very high threshold for any any receiving any therapy they they are afraid of the side effects even like i had to the other day i had to convince a patient with metastatic colorectal cancer to get fosline folfox like which is the standard of care I did not want any chemotherapy at all um and then there are other groups of patients who want even all investigational therapies like uh, whatever is even in just being discovered in the bench they are willing to take that chance so there are two two groups of patients one one group of patient needs to have certainty of benefit i need to be confidently able to tell that patient that yes you if you take this drug you are going to live longer and better hopefully both if not both at least one of them longer or better and then there are other group of patients who says no i need early access to therapy i'm willing to take all the chances now the us system is a very good system the accelerated approval pathway because it gives a balance to both these patients it gives early approval on the basis of surrogate endpoints so the patients who need early access to drugs will have their wish fulfilled but it also mandates that but you guys should conduct a confirmatory trial and only if the confirmatory trial demonstrates clinical benefit you guys can stay on the market and so after that happens the other group of patients are also happy because we can tell them yes now it has been confirmed this drug does improve uh, clinical benefit so you should take this drug so this is such a perfect system but last week what we saw is this exit approval is a package with with two parts of the equation but what we saw is the whole system is favoring only the first part of the equation and it's just ignoring the second half of the equation like only giving early access approving early part of the equation is being honored but the last half of the equation that if the clinical benefit is not confirmed the drug approval will be withdrawn or revoked that part of the equation is not being honored so so this is this is in a sense this is dishonesty we are not honoring the contract uh, to be honest tadi i was surprised when the odac meeting happened uh because at first i my, my first thought was why do you even need an odac meeting the accelerator approval law is clear that if the confirmatory trial fails the approval should be revoked or withdrawn so the fda why, has the why why but, but let's talk why did the odac then voted yes like why why do you think that is i mean they were i don't know how the all of the members of the odac i mean it was unanimous what are yeah, we so the, so my my big surprise as i was telling you is first i was thinking we did not even need an odac meeting the fda could simply revoke the approval and in fact four four approvals were withdrawn even before the odac meeting right the voluntarily withdrawn by the industry uh i think they are regretting now that if they had not voluntarily withdrawn maybe they would have stayed on the market uh and the second thing was i was giving benefit of doubt to the fda and i was thinking like okay the fda is trying to take good steps this is good at least like they will have an odac meeting and then they will uh withdraw the approval but as you mentioned uh in four out of six of those discussions the uh odac committee in fact voted to maintain the approval 
And in some of those cases, it was unanimous. It makes no sense, Sadil. Like, let's look at hepatocellular cancer, for example. There were two drugs being discussed, pembrolizumab and nivolumab. Both of them are the same category of drugs. Similarly bad, like both of them failed to improve outcomes in the confirmatory trial. And pembrolizumab gets 8-0 unanimous vote to be maintained. And nivolumab gets uh, a majority vote not to be maintained. Um, this makes absolutely no why, sense. Why? Like, I, I, no, I, was, I was speaking I, with a I journalist. Wanna, I want to do a podcast on that. I have to think maybe somebody from ODAC will actually be willing to come on the show. I'm not sure they will, but uh, anyway. But that, that's a good point about surrogate endpoints. Let's go. Let's move to point three. <laughs> We've got 10 points. Okay. Uh, the third point is about crossover. So Okay, let's talk about that. Yeah. So, you know, if... If there is a drug already approved in first line, uh, sorry, if there is a drug already approved in second line and you are trying to test whether that same drug is effective in first line, then I think there should be mandatory crossover design built into the trial because that drug is already approved in second line, right? So the control arm patients, when they progress, they have to get access to that drug. Otherwise, it is clearly unethical. Or, or even in the case of adjuvant and, and, and relapse setting, uh, this osimertinib, Adora example, like uh, we know that osimertinib is effective as first-line metastatic treatment for EGFR-positive lung cancer. Now we want to test whether it is effective in adjuvant setting. Then it is mandatory that the, the control arm patients, when they relapse, they should get osimertinib. So this is appropriate crossover, mandatory crossover that needs to happen, but does not happen. So that is one problem with crossover. The other is the other way around. When crossover should not happen, but it still happens. Uh, for example, this cipulacial T in prostate cancer, it was never approved before. Nobody knew whether it was effective or not. So they tested it in first line. Uh, and when the patient's when the control arm patients relapsed or progressed, they were crossover to receive uh, this vaccine. So in effect, what happened was these control arm patients had delayed access to docetaxel, the, the treatment that actually works, because they were crossover to receive this new experimental drug. I see. Yeah. So in fact, if you look at uh, the results, the response is just... There is no, no difference in response. It's just one patient versus zero patient, I think. Like, there is absolutely no response. And if you look at time to tumor progression, there is absolutely no difference. Uh, but if you look at OS, there is a difference. Now, how does that happen? Because the drug is ineffective, yeah. but these control arm patients did not get a better drug in time. So the control arm did worse than, than uh, what would have actually happened. Yeah. So there are these two issues with crossover. One should have happened, but did not happen. The other is should not have happened, but happened. That is, that's really, yeah, you're right. So we talked control arm, surrogate endpoints, crossover. These are really very important. Let's go to point number four. At the point number four is early stopping of clinical trials. Now this is, uh, there are two issues, two main issues with that. One is, I don't think it's, it's, even ethical to stop our clinical trial early based on surrogate endpoint. Like if there is a clear difference in survival that exceeds the threshold for stopping, then okay. But we are seeing more and more trials being stopped early based on those differences in, in, in surrogate endpoints, which is, which is 
a problem. And the other can, thing can you is- Can give us an example, uh, Bishal, of something like that? Like even, even Adora, Adora was stopped on the basis of DFS benefit. Like OS benefit has not been confirmed yet. It was stopped early. The trial was terminated early based on DFS benefit alone. Uh, it was, it was, and I know you're a huge fan of Adora. You wrote how much you love the Adora trial. <laughs> uh, I'm being, being sarcastic, of course. Uh, but but, uh, but uh, people would argue, I mean, if the trial's primary endpoint was disease-free survival and it was met, that's why it was stopped. Uh, like, you know, people will say, we're not stopping early. We met the primary endpoint, so we stopped. No, it was, it was stopped early because it crossed the early stopping threshold. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's my problem. When we are designing a trial and we are putting in that feature of the ability to stop the trial early, the whole, whole purpose of stopping the trial early is the philosophy is that the control arm patients should not be at a disadvantage because if we know early that the drug works, then these control arm patients should have access to the drug. So we are stopping early to protect those few control arm patients. Uh, from having access to the drug and by and after the trial is complete, the rest of the patients uh, will also have um, that information. But in case of Adora, as you can clearly see, there is there is still debate, right? We are still debating the consequences of Adora and whether all patients should get this drug or not. So in a scenario where even after publication of the trial, even six, eight months post-completion of trial, publication of trial, we're still having that debate about whether Adora is really practice changing or not, how is it how is it unethical to continue the trial or how is it ethical to think that the control arm patients will be harmed because we did not stop the trial early and stop and not uh, and by stopping the trial early we are deprived of uh, having uh, properly powered continuation of the trial for for the hard outcomes uh, so I'm not against stopping trial early. I'm against stopping trial early on the basis of surrogate endpoints only. If there is a clear signal of difference in survival, then of course it is unethical to continue the trial and we have to stop it. Uh, a and B, now this is not an issue with the, with the design, but this is an issue with the interpretation. One thing what, that we need to keep in mind is whenever a trial is stopped early, it is stopped early because it crossed that threshold of stopping boundary. So whatever hazard ratio and confidence interval we see, it will, look better than what it would have been had the trial completed in normal time. So we might see like an impressive hazard ratio and we might jump, wow, this is an impressive hazard ratio, but uh, that is so because why, the trial why, is why can't we? Why can't we stop based on a surrogate endpoint if this is the primary endpoint of the study? Like in other words, take away, uh, just in general, let's say we're designing a trial, me and you, and the primary endpoint is a surrogate endpoint. It's PFS, it's whatever it is. And we reach that boundary that we met the if, primary endpoint, why not stop? No, no, if the primary endpoint is a surrogate endpoint, we can, we can, we can stop it uh, when, the, when, the endpoint, when, when the endpoint is met. Normally, we, I'm not comfortable with putting in that provision of early stopping. I see. Based on, yeah. I see. Got it. Okay. Point number five. Point number five I is... I can't believe you found 10 points to critique clinical <laughs> trials. My goodness. You're so difficult to please. Go ahead. Number five. Oh, I thought you would say there were only 10 points. <laughs> <laughs> so the other is about uh, single arm trials, the response rates and duration of responses uh, seen in single arm trials, because 
one previous study published in JCO, I forgot the exact year, showed that for cytotoxic agents, the response rates are inflated in single arm trials versus the same agent, same tumor in a, in a randomized trial. And uh, our recent paper in Journal of NCCN, we tried to study the same thing for targeted agents. And even in the case of targeted agents, we saw that especially the duration of response was quite inflated in single arm trials. So uh, this is a caution against, uh, because you see more and more drugs being approved, uh, sometimes even regular approval based on phase one trial, phase two trial nowadays, because the response rate and the duration of response was substantial. Uh, so this is a caution that says the duration of response of let's say eight months that you saw in a single arm trial is probably inflated. If you ran a larger randomized trial, then the real duration of response probably is somewhere around six months or five months. Yeah. So, so would you not, uh, would you not do single arm trials now, or would you do them as exploratory? Like how, what's. No, I would do a single arm trial to make that decision whether or not the drug is good enough to be tested in a randomized trial. Okay, got it. So you would yeah. not, you would not approve a drug based on a single arm trial. Yeah, I would not. But if, at least until a week ago, I had a compromise that okay, even if you had to approve, there is accelerated approval pathway, and later you will confirm clinical benefit, and we try it. But now that has gone. <laughs> All right. Okay. Point number: Are we at six now or seven? Uh, I think we are at six. Okay. The sixth is about the use of non-inferiority design. Oh, that's the top. I call, yeah, I call like, I think we have to think of non-inferiority design uh, in terms of two issues. One is whether it is justified or not. Justified non-inferiority design versus non-justified non-inferiority design. And the second is the non-inferiority margin. Okay. So what's the justified so, versus non-justified non-inferiority design? Uh, just a couple of examples. I always yeah. think listeners would probably relate more if there's an example. Yeah, like justified is if the newer drug has any advantage, then sometimes you can do a non-inferiority design because certain compromise in efficacy might be acceptable. So certain advantage in terms of, you know, uh, cost. The newer drug is cheaper than the older one or which never happens. Uh, and the other one is uh, in terms of ease of administration. The newer drug is oral. Standard of care was injection. So the patients would prefer oral. Third, less, uh, less, less frequent. The standard of care is every week. This one is every three weeks. Right. Uh, or has a better side effect profile. So right. if any of those four criteria are met, then it's a justified non-effect design. You could justifiably argue that because it's an oral, patients are maybe willing to roll it up to a 10% increase in the risk of uh, recurrence. So we did a non-effect design. When you talk about the margin, is that arbitrary chosen, like the margin of non-effect that's, that's the big problem. And that's what I have been shouting for a long time about, like who decides this margin? I think we should ask the patients, like all non-infinity design trials should begin with a survey of the patients uh, saying up to what percent increase in the risk of recurrence or increasing the risk of dying would you consider acceptable for this uh, benefit? I'll, I'll, I'll give you one example. I was, I was shocked to see this. I don't know whether I can um, find that exact example and quote the exact number. Uh, yeah, there was there was this trial uh, in sarcoma about pazopanib versus doxorubicin as first line treatment in metastatic sarcoma. Mm -hmm. Now, 
non-infinity design is justified, right? Because doxorubicin is toxic, chemo. Pazopanib is also toxic, but at least it's oral. So probably non-infinity design is justified. Right. But you know what the, what the definition of non-infinity is? It's a, it's a confidence interval hazard ratio of 1.8. 1.8. I had never seen anything in that, like that in my life. I have seen like 1.3 and I was, I, was, I was upset that, oh, wow, people are thinking up to 33% increase in the risk of dying is non-inferior. But this was 1.8. That's 80%. Yes. I don't know why, why they didn't make wow. it to <laughs> double the risk. <laughs> okay. All right, that's yeah. pretty interesting. So, but I, I like your idea about non-inferiority. Um, I think, you know, I'll confess, those are, those are tough studies for me to interpret. Like personally, when I read mm -hmm. a, a study that is doing non-inferiority, um, I always feel I need help with the stats portion, uh, 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 portion or the methodology mm -hmm. portion when there's non-inferiority. I kind of feel it's, um, it requires really a good critical eye in statistics. Okay, point number eight. Uh, point number eight is about post-progression therapies. So, you know, until now we're talking about uh, a surrogate endpoint, but this is an issue when overall survival is an endpoint. If you have overall survival endpoint, but after disease progression, the patients did not have access to proper post-progression subsequent therapies, then that can make your drug look better than it actually is. Like, you know, yeah, but Bishal, and remember, once you progress on study, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right, you, mm -hmm. you pretty much the clinical trialist, okay, let's say you are the PI, you're the clinical trialist, and I'm your patient. Mm -hmm. Once mm -hmm. I progress on study, the study mm -hmm. cannot dictate to you what mm -hmm. you are going to treat post-progression. It's really what you decide. I mean, no trial dictates post-progression what you need to treat. Clearly, mm -hmm. it's a limitation because people could treat post-progression differently, but that's not mm -hmm. the fault of the funder of the clinical trial because it's all over the place in the real world, no? Uh, that, that also ties in with our first uh, discussion about these running global trials. So if you are intentionally running trials in, in, in such a way that most of your, you know, like the control arm patients, you, like you're running in countries and you're confident that, okay, they are not going to have any, any subsequent therapies. Well, um, I, I mean, I don't know what they're going to have. My point is I, yeah. I have no control over what they have. I designed the trial and then post-progression, I follow these patients until death or whatever it is, but I have no control. You may end up sending the patient back to their community oncologist or the referring physician, and you still uh -huh. know what they got, but you cannot tell that physician you have to, you, you cannot have a homogeneous post-progression therapy. No, yeah, I, I agree with that. You, you may not have homogeneous, like similar post-progression therapies in, in each arm, but what? Uh, but there are, there, are, there are two things to that. One is that at least uh, it may not be the same treatment, but you would see that like similar percentage of the patients got any subsequent therapy. Okay. Right, because if only ten percent of the patients in the control arm got any subsequent therapy, but ninety percent of the patients in the in the experimental arm got any subsequent therapy, then that confounds overall survival, and that's why we are seeing the overall survival difference. Yeah, no question. Like we have seen trials of endocrine therapy, like you know, uh, ribocyclib in 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 fast-line uh, hormone receptor positive breast cancer patients, and 
we know that usually uh, women with breast cancer who are hormone positive would at least have like four five lines of treatment there are so many endocrine therapy options and then you also have the option of chemotherapy uh, but if you are seeing a first line endocrine receptor positive breast cancer trial and you see that like 50% of the women did not even go to second line therapy and all of them have received uh, just no, that I, first line I, treatment. I, I'm not disagreeing that it's a big limitation. Uh, there's no mm-hmm. question. I think, I, I, think mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. It's a limitation. I think what I'm pushing mm-hmm. back against is I mm-hmm. don't think post-progression therapy mm-hmm. is the fault of the funder or the manufacturer because it, I, I don't know how you would design a trial where you have kind of balanced post-progression therapy and similar post-progression therapy. But certainly, if there's significant mm-hmm. imbalance, it does confound mm-hmm. the interpretation of the results. I just don't can't blame it on the pharma, I guess. Uh, no, no, I'll, I'll, I'll partially agree with you on that. Uh, I, I, I take a point. Uh, my argument is uh, a, definitely it's more related to interpretation of the trial. So when you see such trial and you are interpreting the results, you need to keep that in mind, A. And B, at least uh, when publishing the trials, Yes, there is no control over what what patient got which treatment, but we should, like the readers should be supplied with the information about what percentage of the patients received subsequent therapies and what therapies they were. So so you really want some, I guess what you're trying to get at, and I agree with you, is Mm -hmm. in some reports and some clinical trial, Mm -hmm. we don't have transparency into what the post-progression therapy was so we can properly interpret the results. Yes, yes, that's right. Okay. Uh, And and I have issue with... uh, if it is happening, I don't know whether it's happening or not, intentionally running the trials in in some part of the world, knowing that the patients there will not have access to subsequent therapies. And, and uh, so that will uh, make a difference in uh, the outcomes. Point number nine, I believe we have two more. <laughs> uh, for, so, for listeners, Bishal was going to have 30 points, <laughs> but then, uh, you know, he decided to go to 10. Point number nine. Uh, sorry, sir, this is point number eight. Oh, uh, eight. Sorry. So that is about quality of life uh, reporting because, yeah. you know, uh, uh, this is more related to the SMA-MCPS tool because we give one extra credit if quality of life is improved and we give one penalty we take one point if quality of life is degraded but what we know is there is a lot of publication bias against publishing negative quality of life data so if quality of life data is not published then they don't get penalty because we we penalize if the quality of life is worse Uh, but if the quality of life data is not being published for, for many years then probably that means the quality of life was worse and they intentionally did not publish it. So, but what if some trials did not ca- uh, in the trial itself? There was no, um, they they were not capturing, I guess, quality of life uh, data in the trial. So there's nothing to report on. I understand that for like old trials, but for new trials, I don't think there is any excuse not to capture uh, quality of life because that's that's such an important outcome. We need to know how the patients are feeling. I agree. I agree. I, I just don't know if it's, uh, I mean, have you noticed that they are mainly included in all contemporary trials right now? I, you uh, know, what, maybe it, it might be worth taking a look, to be honest. This is uh, our project. It's about a time since we write a paper together. <laughs> clinicaltrial.gov and see 
the percentage of trials that do incorporate uh, quality of life uh, metrics? Yeah, I have some old data. In 2018, uh, I published this in International Journal of Cancer. We looked at, uh, we did similar to what you just suggested, only 50% of the trials had quality of life data yeah. uh, into the trial design, but 25% of them who had quality of life uh, into their trial design did not report that. Yeah, well, so, yeah. Maybe, maybe worth a refresher. Let's talk about that offline. Okay, <laughs> yeah. number nine. Number nine is about subgroup analysis. And this is... Oh, I love uh, that. I love subgroup. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the whole issue about post hoc analysis and making conclusions based on post hoc analysis. And the other issue is not uh, like conducting subgroup analysis when it is not supposed to be done. And this is very important in the context of the first ODAC meeting for atezolizumab in, in triple negative breast cancer. I find it so surprising, Sadi. The, the argument was that, uh, you know, we had two trials. The first trial led to accelerated approval. And then there was a confirmatory trial. The first trial, 130, showed that there was no difference in OS. And the trial statistical plan says, OS in PDL1 positive subgroup will be tested only if OS in the entire population is positive. So the entire population is negative, but they still did the subgroup analysis. And voila, there was OS difference. And they said, wow, this drug improves OS, although we cannot report p-value because we are not supposed to do so. And that, that gives accelerated approval. And the accelerated approval says, do a conformity trial. They do a conformity trial 131, which no surprise, is negative. OS did not improve. Even PFS did not improve. So what the correct conclusion will be? The correct conclusion will be the first OS difference that we saw is a false positive because that violated our own statistical plan. We did a subgroup analysis that we were not supposed to do. So whatever we saw was a false positive. The confirmatory trial says that's not the case. So the, 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 the approval should be withdrawn. But what happened is people argued that the first subgroup analysis was a positive. Probably this confirmatory trial was a false negative. I Like this is basic stats and I don't know how to even make an argument against that. Don't worry, you're going to have a stroke one day. Take aspirin, take aspirin. <laughs> you need to meditate and take aspirin. Okay, number 10. Uh, yeah, and the final point uh, is about uh, informative censoring. Uh, now, to be honest, uh, even like I myself was not much aware of this issue until I started to really dive into this. Uh, and I think uh, this is a point that many oncologists are not aware of, uh, including myself from six months ago. Uh, so this informative censoring is, you know, ideally when patients drop out from the trial, mm -hmm. we, for, for other reasons, we assume that uh, that is balanced between the two arms, between the experimental and the control arm. So that is called non-informative censoring. But if more patients are dropping out from the experimental arm because of toxicities and you know um, being unable to even come to the hospital and things like that, that is called informative censoring. Because now what will happen is these patients that are really sick or that did really poor, they are excluded from the analysis so now the experimental arm is going to look much better than, than uh, the real one. And this is especially important when the primary endpoint is a surrogate because overall survival, there is no confounding. Uh, so, but, but the, 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 if there is enough 
patients that drop in both mm -hmm. arms, it's okay when you censor those. If if there are equal number of patients, equal. yeah, roughly equal number of patients for, for, for similar reasons. And that's the basic assumption that we have. Uh, so this uh, is when there's an imbalance in the number yeah. of patients I see. Okay who drop out and, and for reasons that are actually associated with the treatment. And one good example is the Bolero 2 trial of Everolimus uh, in breast cancer, uh, in hormone receptor positive breast cancer. Because uh, here what we see is there is a big difference in PFS, uh, but there is no difference in OS. And you, if you look at the toxicity rates, the toxicity rate is quite high with the drug. So uh, this gives us an, a clear, uh, this gives us an indication that Many patients dropped out because of toxicity, uh, and that did not reflect in the PFS, but ultimately the OS turned out to be the same. Oh boy, Vishal, that's, uh, <laughs> that is really, um, well, first of all, uh, I mean, thank you. This is really very good. Uh, uh, I mean, I loved uh, the paper myself, but I like that we are analyzing each point uh, alone. I know that you mean well, you wanted to educate a lot of people about clinical trial design. Do you, you know, I don't know. Where do you think this is heading? What do you think there there's um, any opportunity for a clinical trial reform? Um, are you seeing any hints, any signs? And then we'll we'll conclude with your concluding remarks. But I mean, wh where do you see? What's your next step? Uh, as I told you, Zadi, you caught me at a little sad time. Uh, I'm I was very upbeat and optimistic and I thought like educating people will make a difference and I, I was really working hard in that direction but uh, looking at how things are turning out uh, people do not want to be educated people want to prefer to to, to turn a blind eye to data uh, but 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 you can't argue with data uh, I think like I will still continue to do this type of work with the hope that the newer generation, the the uh, there, are, there are so many good people out there, uh, and if um, this sort of education can make some difference, then I guess these are the people who will be in ODAC meeting in future. Maybe uh, we should put you in ODAC. <laughs> uh, then uh, probably that will that will make a difference. But uh, you know, ultimately like regulatory policy is or reimbursement policies, these are one part of the equation, but what matters is actually what happens in the clinic between the physician and the patient. That's the ultimate end point of all these policy decisions. So if through this work, um, a number of uh, physicians uh, will stay more updated about these issues uh, and they will try to make a rational decision-making with the patient, then that is what ultimately matters. And as more and more physicians become aware, I think, Physicians and patients, we we hold the ultimate power, right? If like, like let's say there is a there is a, a trial being offered at uh, our center, and uh, the physician there is aware of all these issues, and the physician says, "No, I'm not going to recruit any patients to this trial because you are using an inferior control arm. I would not accept that." Or yeah. uh, you should have a crossover design built in. Then that's how I think change can happen. It will take time, uh, but I think uh, that's the ultimate end goal. Uh, I, I'd like to say one thing. Like uh, you know him very well, Professor Ian Davies from Monash University, Australia. He's 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 one of my role models. I I, I really admire him. He has led all these big uh, prostate cancer trials. And when I published this paper, his comment. Um, I can't quote exactly, but uh, I'll paraphrase. His comment was, this is a good checklist uh, that I will keep as a reference, 
before I start any trial or before I start writing about uh, writing my trial publication. Um, so uh, I, I loved your your article. I loved it. I I I, I uh, I'm like you. I just don't know if we're ever gonna live to the day. Well, let me back up, Bishal. I think the cynical person in me feels that there is there is never a perfect trial. I mean, you're mm-hmm. you you're you do peer review, you provide critical mm-hmm. appraisal of articles and papers, and you do a great job at. I bet you any trial that I will show you, you can definitely uh, find some shortcomings and some problems with it. In mm-hmm. fact, that's why in every single paper, there's a section mm-hmm. called limitations. limitations of this trial. You have to have that section. Otherwise, you're never going to get the paper published. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so I don't know. There's no perfection, but we don't want to have perfect be enemy of the good. Yeah, but uh, there may not be perfect trials, but we can be nearly perfect consumers of research, right? We can interpret the research well. We can use it better uh, and implement it uh, in a in a very thoughtful way when we are making those decisions. So we may not be perfect trialists, but we can be perfect consumers of uh, of clinical research. Oh, I, you can't uh, beat that as an ending for this episode. Uh, this is really <laughs> wonderful. Uh, before I let you go, I just want to, uh, first of all, congratulations on this work. I want to have you more often. This is such an enjoyable thing. But um, I want you to have uh, concluding remarks. And you have to say something in Nepalese, in Indian, and in <laughs> Japanese for listeners. But uh, concluding remarks. Uh, thank you, Tadi, uh, for this opportunity to to share my uh thoughts and this paper with uh, a larger audience and i had missed seeing you this was a great opportunity to see you again all the virtually uh, i'm going to say in nepali nepal lai ajai dherai sahyog ko khancho cha corona virus ko karan le nepal le nepal ra nepali janta harle dherai dukha pairaheka chan hamile aadharbhut kura haru jastai oxygen icu bed ini aadharbhut kura haru ko khancho cha ajai janachetna ko khancho cha malai aasha cha सम्पूर्ण विश्व समुदायले नेपाललाई पहिला जस्तै हामीलाई भूकम्प आएको बेलामा जस्तै अरु बेलामा जस्तै सहयोग गर्नेछ नेपाल र नेपालीलाई तपाईँहरूको खाँचोको जरुरत छ धन्यवाद सो आई जस्ट प्लिडेड टु द वर्ल्ड कम्युनिटी टु हेल्प नेपाल इन आवर फाइट अगेन्स्ट कोरोना भाइरस सो इन हिन्दी आई आई एम नट अ भेरी गुड स्पिकर अफ हिन्दी ल्याङ्ग्वेज आई अन्डरस्ट्यान्ड इट भेरी वेल बट वेन आई वेन आई स्पिक आई माइट बी मेकिङ सम मिस्टेक सो आई अपलोजाइज बिफोर ह्यान्ड भारत को भी सहयोग के बहुत जरूरी है आप लोग जो भी आप लोग सकते हैं भारत को जरूर सहयोग कीजिए भारत और भारतीय जनता इस वक्त कोरोना वायरस के कारण आपत में है आपकी जरूरत की आशा है so i pleaded again to help uh, india and, and indian population yeah, and i've been really COVID. i mean i've been very vocal on social media it is so important i've been very disappointed i'm not going to lie with the us response we're seeing some movement right now on social yeah. media but i apologize for interrupting go ahead uh, and uh, finally about uh, japan kotoshi nippon de olympic I even know that in Japanese. I know, <laughs> I know, Jap- I know Japanese. Yatra kara minasan. Dekhi to ta ke 
応援してください。日本でもこういうコロナウイルスのせいで結構大変だと思ってますけど、でも日本と日本人はとても頑張っていつも前向きに頑張ってると思いますので。世界中の皆さん、日本のため、日本人のため、とそれともオリンピックゲームのため、ぜひ応援してください。ありがとうございます。And you were saying that you won the Olympics or you do, you good luck with the Olympics, I think.、Uh, yeah, well, what I was saying was basically,、uh, Olympics are happening this year in, in, in Japan. And、uh, I know it's a very difficult time because of coronavirus, but knowing Japan and Japanese,、uh, They are very hardworking people and they will, they will do their best to make this、uh, successful. And we'll need the support of everyone throughout the world,、uh, encouragement from everyone throughout the world to make this a successful event. Well, you are one of the most talented physicians I know. Not only you speak four or five languages and you do research and you are、uh, just amazing. I think、um, I'm just very happy that you were able to take some time and, and, and be with us. And,、uh, I hope、uh, a lot of people listen to this、uh, episode. I think there's so many pearls in terms of clinical trial design、uh, in this particular episode. Keep up the good work, Bishal. We need to have you more often on the show. Thank you very much, Adi. It's a pleasure. I hope、well, we can meet in person、uh, very, sometime soon now. Very soon. Very soon.、Yeah. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to Bishal and I discussing clinical trial design. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you learned a few things after you listened that you did not know before you listened. I totally appreciate your support. I appreciate your loyalty and I ask you to subscribe, rate, and review this show as much as possible. Uh, also, refer friends and colleagues to the show. I want to know、uh, any feedback from you. You can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, that's at C H A D I N A B H A N, and you can also send me an email to Shadi Nabhan OO at Outlook.com. Feel free to visit my website, Shadi Nabhan.com, and let me know what you think as you browse through various features of the website. I want to leave you with a saying by Isaac Newton. Truth is ever to be found in simplicity and not in the multiplicity and confusion of things. It is so fitting to remember what Isaac Newton said when we talk about clinical trial design. Until next time, take care.